increased interest rates all over the European currencies were sending Europe into a recession. And uh, the other European countries said at that particular moment, well, we really need some kind of say in this because we want to be able to determine monetary policy. France and other countries as well are getting a kind of leverage on making monetary policy that they didn't have before. Imagine, or perhaps think back, to a Europe in which each country had a different currency. In Germany, you bought things with Deutschmark, but cross the border into France and you'd have to use the French franc. And further still, in Spain, you'd be buying things with the Spanish peseta. Currencies are omnipresent in the modern day and permeate commerce, government, and psychology in perhaps equal measures. We value things in a currency with which we have the most familiarity, and gigantic infrastructures have been built up to ensure that currencies are valued and exchanged in real time throughout the world. Join us as we explore the creation of the Euro and learn about the history of the second largest reserve currency on Earth. This is Riches and Power, the podcast where we explore the industries and trends that shaped our world with experts renowned in their field of study. I'm your host, Alex Dubay, and I'm glad you're here as we explore topics both large and small, familiar and strange, and near and far. Join me as we learn about the forces that bent the world around them and built the world as we know it today. Harold James, the Claude and Lori Kelly Professor in European Studies at Princeton University, is Professor of History and International Affairs at the Woodrow Wilson School and an associate at the Bentheim Center for Finance. Harold's a prolific author, having written a number of books, including The Euro and the Battle of Ideas, Making a Modern Central Bank, The Bank of England, 1979 to 2003, and Making the European Monetary Union. His studies and writing focus on economic history, including globalization, economic crises, and, as we'll be discussing today, currencies. You can find out more about Harold James by visiting history.princeton.edu slash people slash Harold dash James. Harold, thanks so much for joining today. I really appreciate your time. It's great being with you, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. You know, when I encountered you, I was excited to talk because currencies are I think kind of this this invisible thing a lot of times. We don't really think about them all that much. You just spend with dollars in the US, you spend with euros in the eurozone. And and I at least don't pay them much mind. The euro, I, I mentioned in the introduction, it's the second largest reserve currency on the planet and it's the second most traded. I at least am most familiar with it in terms of just trips to Europe, frankly. You you take euros out of an ATM or maybe you you spend euros on a credit card. But beyond that, I don't know much about it. Could you give us a little bit of a deeper flavor of what the euro is? When, when did it come about? Where is it used? Uh, and how do you think about its importance internationally? Sure. The euro was introduced around about the turn of the century. So it was legally introduced in 1999, uh, but it wasn't yet a physical currency. So you couldn't have a euro coin or a, or a euro banknote. And the physical coins in the banknotes came in 2002. So it's a relatively recent uh, currency. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe that is also part of the story of the ups and downs, and particularly the downs that it's had over the last 20 years. So it's not really achieved uh, the goal that some of the Europeans wanted it to have 
uh, in the 1990s or even before when they were thinking about this kind of scheme of replacing the US dollar because uh, there are many people all over the world, uh, you know, not just now, but uh, it's intensely uh, expressed now. Uh, but since the 1960s, uh, there was a widespread feeling in Europe uh, that the dollar was mismanaged and uh, that you needed to get a replacement for the dollar. And in a sense, the euro was the answer to that on a political level. So there was a big political concept behind the euro. But there was also what you mentioned in your introduction, uh, just the physical convenience of things. Uh, because uh, indeed, if you traveled around Europe in the late 20th century, uh, you had to have all kinds of different banknotes and different coins and um, uh, you know, men's jackets got worn out because the pockets were full of these heavy coins that wore holes in the pockets. And you, I, I remember also d doing this, you, you, you go to the airport exchange store and you convert money and you lose a great deal of money on that operation because the uh, the rates of exchange are uh, just uh, extravagantly extortionary. Um, so you know there was a, there was a kind of convenience aspect to it, but uh, you know I fundamentally believe that the, the 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 goal behind it was much more the big political vision because after all there are other ways of getting rid of the burden of the proliferation of coins. You know, for instance, I was recently in Scandinavia in uh, Norway and Sweden and Denmark, uh, three countries with different coins and different banknotes. But in none of those did I actually have a, a banknote in my hand or a coin. I just paid everything with my plastic card, whether my debit card from my bank or my visa card. Um, so you, know, you, you could really get rid of the inconvenience aspect without all the difficulty of going towards the full monetary union. Had they just waited a few decades, credit cards, electronic payments would have been totally prevalent. But I, I wonder, back prior to when you could, heck, these days, I, I tap with my phone and, and that's most of the way I pay. Sure, you're a different generation. You know, I, I, I don't do the phone stuff, but I use my <laughs> Yeah, and, and I, I, I really don't have in my memory uh, an experience of having to exchange currencies over in Europe. I, I've only traveled over there post the euro's introduction when when you just had one currency for all intents and purposes but what was it like in europe for for people and and, and particularly for businesses before the introduction of the euro when there there're all sorts of uh, international trades going on between those various countries in in dozens of different currencies what was that like well it was not as cumbersome as you might think although Obviously, you had the business of converting and the bank charges and the bank fees and uh, sending money by wire to a different country was indeed more expensive than sending money domestically. So there was some kind of inconvenience. Um, but for quite a long time, since the end of the 1970s, the major European countries at least had been fixed in their exchange rates against each other, although they could alter those, but uh, the, those alterations of exchange rates were relatively frequent in the early 80s, then they became less frequent in the second half of the 1980s. So it wasn't as if the exchange rate changed very much, although when it did, uh, you really got into problems then, and those were much nastier than just the business of being difficult to convert money. Because for instance, in the early 1990s, there was a major financial crisis 
the Spanish currency, the peseta, and the Italian currency, the lira, were devalued against the French franc. And that means uh, that then the French wine becomes more expensive relative to the Spanish and Italian wine. And the French wine farmers get extremely upset, and uh, they're quite radical, and they're a powerful political lobby. They go on the streets, and they send their tractors into the towns, and they dump grapes outside the mayor's office and outside the government offices. And uh, it's, it's a big political problem. And so getting the currencies stable against each other was already a big task in terms of having a trading area where there was a great deal of trading going on. But you, you can see if you alter the exchange rates within a trading area, you do indeed get this sudden effect that uh, suddenly, if the Italian currency is devalued, Italian wine, for instance, becomes cheaper and French farmers get angry. Was that viewed as a, a trade war of sorts? Was it an intentional devaluation? It was not an intentional devaluation to get trade advantages. It followed really from uh, the way in which the relative exchange rates had moved in real terms. So things were getting more and more expensive in Italy and Spain because they had a kind of inflation built in and people behave, people setting prices, workers demanding wages, behaved as if the currencies were still quite inflationary. And so gradually Italy and Spain got uncompetitive. And then uh, the financial markets realized that, and there's this, this enormous sudden movement, uh, and that's the moment that it blows up. So I don't think you could say that it was a deliberate trade war, but the consequences are felt in terms of trade. Thinking back to the time before the euro, I remember my my father telling me the story of, of traveling in Europe as a, as a child, and, and you'd see traditional dress in Germany and Italy. There, there was a real international flavor. There was a unique flavor to each country that has largely moderated these days in, in much of Europe. And I, in thinking about this discussion, I, I wonder if the same was somewhat true when it came to currencies. Was there a, a pride of sorts uh, around the, the particular international currency, the, the lira in Italy, the, the franc in, in France? Was, was there any sort of national identity tied up into the currencies? It's a good question uh, because the answer varies according to where you are. I don't think there's any particular pride attached to the lira or the peseta, but the Germans in particular were immensely proud of the German mark. And there was a great deal of angst and anguish in the late 1990s when it was clear that the German mark was ending, uh, would be over, would be eliminated. And the mark looked like one of the great achievements of the Federal Republic. So it was born actually slightly before the Federal Republic was born. It was born in the summer of 1948 after a big currency reform one year before the, German, the West German state was created. And uh, the German currency had been very stable, in quite a contrast to previous German currencies, more stable than the dollar, or more stable than the pound, or more stable than the uh, Italian lira. And uh, you know, the Germans looked at currencies like the pound or the lira as a bit of a joke, quite honestly. Um, so, you know, I think uh, if you go to Britain, uh, you will find even though the inflation performance in the 70s and the 60s was very poor. Uh, people are still quite proud of the British pound, and they would like to have the head of the monarch, you know, used to be the queen. They're going to design new banknotes with the king, with King Charles. 
they used to like to have the the monarch on their banknotes. Uh, but for the Germans, there's a real attachment because there was a real achievement in terms of getting this relative price stability compared to other countries. And that's interesting through the context of moving into the latter 20th century, you've got this realization that the dollar is preeminent. Europe as a block has the opportunity to perhaps rival the dollar. There's a need to do that. It makes international trade easier to have a single European currency. But then looking at Germany and France in particular throughout your work, it's very clear. Germany and France are really the, the primary drivers of the creation of the euro and the EU generally. And going off of what you just said, that national pride for the Deutschmark in Germany, it's so interesting that they would have that pride and yet also be a driver to create the euro and, and the eurozone. How do you think about that discrepancy or that dichotomy there in, in Germany? Well, you're, you're right to highlight the paradox about that, uh, because indeed uh, there is this feeling that Germany is giving up something really significant and giving up the German mark. On the other hand, France is really gaining something, because the French had argued in the late 20th century, in the 1980s and 1990s, that effectively the European monetary system was run around Germany, that it was the central German currency that was really dictating the behavior of the European countries, currencies on the international markets. And so the French argued, if that's the case, we really need some kind of institutional way of having our influence or the influence of Belgium, the influence of the Netherlands, the influence of Italy on decision-making, on monetary policy. Because particularly, uh, it, this was given a dramatic flavor in the early 1990s. When Germany was unified, it had an enormous fiscal cost. Uh, the anti-inflationary tradition of the German Central Bank put the interest rates up as the fiscal expenses increased. And so increased interest rates all over the European currencies were sending Europe into a recession. And uh, the other European countries said at that particular moment, well, we really need some kind of say in this because we want to be able to determine monetary policy. We don't just want this German central bank to determine monetary policy for all of us. And so, in effect, France and other countries as well are getting a kind of leverage on making monetary policy that they didn't have before when the currencies are tied together, but essentially the fundamental decisions are all made in Frankfurt by the very, very powerful German central bank, the Bundesbank. And why on earth would Germany want to give that up in any regard and move into a single currency system? Well, there are several different answers to that. And uh, it's, it's, it's an excellent question. And it's hotly debated still among German academics and also in the German press. One argument uh, is that actually the way that they designed the European Central Bank would preserve the way of thinking of the Bundesbank. And so essentially, although more members are put onto the board, uh, the European Central Bank will behave as if it was still the Bundesbank. And some German bankers at the time made that argument very strongly. They also said, for instance, that the German Central Bank is very independent, was very independent, but that's the result of a German law, of a law of 1957. And parliament can always change any law. Uh, if you get the right election result, a parliament could change this. But if you anchor price stability in an international treaty, it's much harder to change it. And so 
you know, some Germans in the early 1990s thought that what they were doing was anchoring the policy perspective of the Bundesbank into an international treaty. Now, there's a completely contrasting view, uh, which echoes the question that you, you, you put, why, why on earth would the Germans do this? And uh, so some people, the argument appears like this, that giving up their currency, their powerful currency, and their powerful hold over European money was the price that Germany had to pay for France agreeing to German unification. So they say that it was part of a political deal. You know, I don't think the evidence for that is very good. Uh, the chancellor at the time, in effect, the, the head of government, um, Helmut Kohl, very, very much wanted to get the single currency, get the euro, uh, and saw that also as a German achievement. And uh, so from Kohl's point of view, he, he didn't really think that he was giving up something. You know, there was one moment when he said something to the then US Secretary of State, uh, James Baker, in the early 1990s in these tense negotiations about German unification. He said something about Germany having to give up some things. And, you know, I think what he was trying to say there was that, you know, Germany is not just winning and not just getting more powerful as a result of the collapse of East Germany, but Germany is also making a sacrifice. I don't think he really meant that it was a sacrifice. I, I certainly don't believe that Helmut Kohl saw things in that way. But it's certainly the argument, the question that you put is an argument that's made by people, particularly conservative oppositionists in Germany, anti-Euro people, that they do make that argument quite frequently and quite robustly. So why would Germany give up the power? On, on the one hand, you have the, the theory that, well, the, the European Central Bank is essentially the Bundesbank, so it, it is just kind of the, the German Central Bank by another name. Exactly. And on the other hand, perhaps a, a, a price to pay, if you will, for and, and the reunification you're referring to is East and West Germany coming back together after the Iron Curtain era and so forth, correct? That's correct, yes. Got it. Interesting. One other reason that I've read for the euro coming into existence, you, you, you mentioned this briefly, but it was an effort to challenge the preeminence of the dollar. And, and obviously, through to today, the dollar is still the, the most traded international reserve currency. But why was there this feeling on the continent of Europe that coming together to create what became the euro needed to happen to challenge the preeminence of the dollar. What, what was the driver or drivers there that were pushing that line of thinking? It's an old argument that essentially went back to the 1960s. And you know, when you ask about Germany and France, this is an argument that was much more powerful and much more popular in France than it was in Germany. But in France, it got a degree of political vigor uh, because it was powerfully pushed by the figure, I think, who is still the commanding figure in 20th century French history, uh, General de Gaulle. So General de Gaulle was a man of immense vision. And he believed that the United States, through its control of the dollar in the international monetary system, had a unique privilege. Other people in France called it an exorbitant privilege. And it was simply this that the United States can print paper, and then with the paper, it can buy up European firms, French firms in particular, and there was a great outcry about the French firms that were selling out to Americans in the 1960s. And it could also pay for the troops that it was stationing in Europe. So these printed dollars 
uh, that the rest of the world was obliged to hold uh, essentially came at no cost to the United States. And so the United States was fighting wars. De Gaulle was a little bit critical. Many people in France were much more critical of Vietnam. So, uh, you know, this in the 1960s, this had a kind of political dynamism that the United States is controlling the world, and it can pay for that simply because it has this unique privilege. And uh, the supposition is if you get rid of that, then you know, if you have a euro as an alternative to the dollar, then other countries also have the opportunity to hold euros rather than hold dollars, and they will do that. In practice, as you were saying, you know, the United States is still by far the leading reserve currency of the world, and the Europeans are second, but they're in a kind of very backward position as second. You know, they're not close to overtaking the dollar. And then the reason for that is simple, that, uh, that there is no really single deep financial market uh, with single easily intelligible uh, government bonds or treasury paper. You know, the United States, the treasuries are a very, very simple and obvious instrument for Germany, France, Netherlands, Italy, Greece, Spain, you've got all these different government bonds and they're not as easily tradable. Uh, the markets are not as deep or as liquid. So until you basically go the full way and also have a market in European government bonds, that doesn't exist at the moment. Is there thought that there may be at some point or, or was that a... Yes, there's a very, very small step in that direction in 2020. Uh, in response to the COVID pandemic, the Europeans agreed on a next generation EU project, which does allow for common borrowing and a common bond issue. And so there is for the first time then really a common European bond, but it's simply not big enough to challenge the US treasury market. That's fascinating. I've, I've thought before that there's a remarkably powerful network effect of sorts in, in currency adoption. And because everybody uses the dollar everybody has to continue using the dollar. And that's a very difficult network to disentangle. And you hear the, the talks going on right now about trying to get perhaps the Chinese currency more, more widely traded or whatnot. But it, looking at Europe as a analog, it, it seems like that would be a very difficult thing to displace once the currency network is in place, once the dollar is preeminent. It's very hard to tear down that preeminence. No, you're absolutely right about that. And I think the dollar will indeed stay for some long time. But you know, when you're thinking about the present situation, you are thinking about something that is in a way, does have its parallels with the 1960s, in that the United States is clearly weaponizing the dollar uh, and using the dollar as an instrument in sanctions against countries that are doing business with Russia. Having said that, you know, obviously the Europeans are in exactly the same position. I mean, the Europeans are just as vigorous and as enthusiastic in supporting Ukraine against the Russian attack as the United States is. And in some ways, the weaponization doesn't occur now so much through the currency as through the payment system. So it's SWIFT, the international payment system that is being used to trace where the payments are moving to Russia. But it does produce exactly this effect that China, Russia, but also India, South Africa, Brazil, and other emerging markets uh, are trying to set up an alternative to the dollar. And uh, it's driven by some of the same arguments that the Europeans had, that you know, Brazil in particular is pushing this. The uh, current president of Brazil, Lula, 
you know, was president before, but he's got a much more radical administration there. And uh, he, he is really saying uh, that we don't want to be dependent on the United States uh, because every time the Fed increases the interest rates, uh, then the Brazilian interest rates go up because there's so much done in dollars. And if we could deal with India and uh, with China and, and so on instead, uh, we would not be so dependent on the Fed's monetary policy. That's wonderful background. I, I've got a much better feel for why the euro came to be. One of the important things to understand in, in my mind in researching this was the Maastricht Treaty in 1992. That's really where the EU, the European Union, and the euro itself was born. What happened in Maastricht back in the, the early 90s? Well, again, this is the immediate aftermath of the big geopolitical upheaval, the fall of the Berlin Wall. And then in 1991, the Soviet Union is collapsing. Uh, so there's a big geopolitical issue. And Europe really needed to do something to show that it had some kind of coherence and some kind of resolve. And in some ways, you know, I think in retrospect, uh, the easiest thing to do, if they really have been serious about wanting to do a big European statement, and that's what Helmut Kohl in Germany, we talked about him already, and François Mitterrand, his French equivalent, the president of the French Republic, uh, what Kohl and Mitterrand wanted was a grand European gesture. And the most obvious grand European gesture, I think, would have been a military union. And you know, then you really would have moved closer to being a, a single state. Uh, but there were all kinds of reasons why you couldn't do a military union in the early 1990s. There were the defense industries in each country. And the French army wants French airplanes and French tanks and French guns and French boots. The German army, German guns and German tanks and German aircraft. And the Italian army wants Italian boots and Italian guns and so on. They can't really do that. And then there was this plan that was actually already there in the drawers. So it's, it's kind of action ready. It had already been laid out before the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. So the conference uh, or the, the series of meetings that produced it was the meetings of the Delors Committee. Uh, they finished in April 1989, months before the Berlin Wall came down. But nobody at that time thought that the Berlin Wall would come down. And so there's this plan for European money. And so then that looks as if it's the thing that you can do to show that Europe is coming together. And so having a common money is a way also of having a collective identity. And you know, we, we started off talking about that. Are countries attached to their national currencies? Well, some are and some aren't. And uh, for Italy or for Spain, it was actually attractive to get this thing that showed that they were really European. And uh, in that sense, uh, the euro has a kind of psychological weight. But I think it's a poor as that as a way of getting a political coherence for doing the real thing of having a common European army, but it's the best they could do in the circumstances. So getting the euro for particularly Spain, Italy, that was the club card that was showing you were, you were in the club, so to speak. Is that fair? Yes. And I mean, it's not just a club. Well, it is a club card, you know, like uh, some club cards, uh, you know, these uh, wholesale shopping cards. Um, <laughs> it actually has a financial advantage because... Uh, uh, it radically lowered their borrowing costs. Uh, uh, at the moment that they join the euro, their borrowing costs come down. And so it, the Italian government can afford things that it couldn't afford before it joined the euro. Looking at the Maastricht Treaty, catalyzed by the fall of the 
uh, the wall. And but but looking at the major points that were discussed back in '92, and I, I know there were dozens of points discussed, but w- looking at the euro in particular, were there any major points of contention? Yes, two points I think turned out to be fundamental fault lines or weaknesses in the construction of the euro. One was that the new European Central Bank wouldn't do financial supervision and regulation. And that was actually also an inheritance from the Bundesbank because the Bundesbank believed that the Central Bank shouldn't do financial supervision and financial regulation. And uh, that limits the ability of the ECB uh, the European Central Bank, to deal with the financial crisis when it erupted after 2008. You know, maybe you could have said nobody could really know that something like 2008 was going to happen. The other weakness, though, I think was a more obvious one, which is that there was a worry in Maastricht about whether countries would have enough fiscal discipline. And uh, the construction was made so that the ECB was not going to be allowed to bail out countries if they had a fiscal crisis. Uh, So there's no direct financing of the government requirement in the Maastricht Treaty. Uh, And then a set of rules. And they looked as if they were quite simple rules. They were both the rules for the countries that would join the European Currency Union. And then they were preserved as the Stability and Growth Pact for the countries that were actually in the monetary union. And that put a limit on the deficit that you could run. So the maximum deficit permitted was 3% of GDP. And it put a limit on the government debt level, the maximum debt level that you could have was 60% of GDP. But uh, very, very quickly, you saw that these rules were not really as clear as they looked and not clearly enforceable. And um, So two countries went into the monetary union uh, with substantially larger debt levels than was permitted under Maastricht. One was Belgium, and you could say, well, there was a particular rather odd issue because Belgium was in a currency union with Luxembourg, a terribly tiny country, and uh, Luxembourg clearly observed all the rules. And so Luxembourg could be admitted, but if you admit Luxembourg, you can't really not admit Belgium. But then if you admit Belgium, the government debt level in the 90s was higher than that of Italy. And so Italy, which was above the Maastricht uh, deadline, also said we need to be admitted. And uh, Italy was indeed admitted to the euro. So the rules weren't particularly enforceable or enforced from the beginning. Right, that's correct. And then in the early 2000s, Germany and France both started to violate the rules, and so these rules looked as if they were kind of not really terribly serious. The other question I was very curious to hear your thoughts on, and and it may be a similar answer here, but in your mind, were there any major issues that were left undecided coming out of the Maastricht Treaty in, in regards to the euro and the currency union? Well, those are, I think, the two issues. First of all, the question of financial supervision. And you know, again, you might say you couldn't really know this in the early 1990s because that was before the big financialization and the big uh, movement into these enormous supersized banks that uh, you know were basically got in the 1990s. And so, when they were designing the rules in 1991 and 1992, they 
might not have realized that that was going to happen. Although one of the things I think the uh, European Monetary Union was supposed to do was to create the common basis for a common European capital market. And if that was going to take place, you could really think that you would get big-sized European banks. You know, but that, that was a uh, non-solved issue. And the second uh, big issue is the issue of the fiscal rules, and that's still indeed a controversial issue. In your book, The Euro and the Battle of Ideas, you, you wrote that there were and are really substantial philosophical differences between France and Germany, the, the two biggest economies, in regards to the euro. Would you walk us through what some of those important differences are between France and Germany? They're very deep-seated, and in some ways they go back a long way. And already in the early 19th century, there was a very skillful Swiss writer, Madame de Stael, who wrote about this and said, you know, France and Germany look similar socially, but they have completely different political visions. Germany is a federal country. Uh, in a federal country, you need lots and lots of rules. You know, the United States needs lots of rules as a federal country. Switzerland needs lots of rules. Uh, France is a very centralized country. And in France, there's a tradition that somebody in Paris can decide. So there can be the sun king sits in his palace in Paris and, um, makes the decision, or Napoleon sits there in the in the palace and uh, makes the decision. So uh, in the early 20th century, people liked to joke that the French education minister could look at his watch and say what every pupil in France was reading at that precise moment. In Germany, with a decentralized education system, doesn't have that. So that's a fundamental principle, I think. Uh, you know, on the one side, uh, thinking in terms of rules for everything, and on the other side, thinking that the central power can make a quick, snappy decision. And then that approach gets transferred also when you're thinking about how to handle a financial crisis, because the French supposition is the financial crisis is just a temporary one, and we can deal with it easily by providing more liquidity. We, we can just pump some more liquidity into it, and we'll get over the crisis like that. And the German view is that if crises occur, there are really fundamental crises that show that the rules have been violated and the crisis becomes a moment when you need to restructure and uh, make sure that that kind of crisis doesn't happen again. And so a crisis for France is a kind of temporary one that can be dealt with relatively simply. And for Germany, it's a fundamental one that raises solvency issues. And so you want to really make sure the countries are uh, solvent again. And this spills over into the area of fiscal policy. France likes spending money when you're in the middle of a recession. It's classically a Keynesian country. Germany is worried about that because it poses a strain to the, um, the federal system again. So these different mindsets, uh, they're bridged over really when the euro is doing quite well and things seem to be stable in the first half of the first decade of the of our century, of the 21st century. But as the European debt crisis develops, they really become a central point of clash between uh, Paris and Berlin. It sounds like almost a, a perpetual whack-a-mole where you're always trying to craft rules that prevent whatever the current crisis du jour is from happening again in the future, whereas France views it more as just an ability for some sort of centralized action to take place. Is that fair? Yes, that's absolutely right. And so, uh, you know, when there's a crisis in Greece or Spain or Portugal or Ireland, the Germans want to look for the deep roots of it 
And the French say, well, this is not the moment to look for the deep roots of anything. We just need to get through this crisis. And then we can think, if we're growing out of the crisis, how we can do things better and how we can make Europe more productive. And Germany says it's actually better to do the painful adjustments in the middle of the crisis. And that's obviously a painful exercise. And I, I presume a lot of times the, the political will to make those changes has waned by the time the crisis has passed as well. Yeah, that's exactly what the Germans will, will say again and again. And to some extent, I mean, a lot of experts, economists, uh, governments as well in outside Europe, Britain and in the United States really said how backwards and how retrogressive the German approach was. But uh, you, you can, I think, see in Portugal and Greece actually quite significant economic improvement after the European debt crisis. And Greece and Portugal now look both politically stable and economically successful. So these differences between France and Germany's reactions to crises have persisted for, for the duration of the euro, in your view? Yes, indeed. And they were accentuated in the aftermath of the general financial crisis after the collapse of Lehman in uh, 2008. They are even more accentuated after there's a specific problem in Greece in late 2009. And you know, to some extent, they've come back again in thinking about how we need to redesign the European architecture after COVID and after the Ukraine war. Looking back into the early 2000s, I think it was 02 when we saw a dual circulation period in Europe where you had both the euro and the country's individual currency circulating at the same time. And I wonder, prior to the, the old currencies being sunsetted, in your research, did you encounter, again, going back to this, this idea of the psychology of money, were there any interesting psychological effects that, that you encountered? Were, were people reminiscing left and right about the, the loss of their national identity, so to speak, as, as that dual circulation period came to a close and, and the euro was the only currency? The dual circulation didn't last very long. I mean, actually, people were surprised by how quickly and successfully the euro was introduced and how the national currencies got retired really long before the dates that they were still permitted to circulate in. I mean, the one psychological thing that I think was interesting and caused a little bit of difficulty at the beginning uh, was that prices get reset when they're set in the euro. And uh, people in particular noticed that prices of everyday goods um, increased quite dramatically. And, you know, the price of the, everybody in Italy or France goes into a bar first thing in the morning and buys a, an espresso. And, uh, you know, they noticed that the espresso costs almost double as much as it did in the national currency. And why did that happen? What was driving that? It's not altogether easy to answer it, but, uh, you know, prices, when they're fixed and when there hasn't been a lot of inflation, are very, very sticky. And no Italian cafe bar owner wants to do something out of line with the other cafes. Uh, so uh, the expectation of the price is fixed in lira. And then when you've got the opportunity to do it in a new currency, uh, you can think again and you put a new price on. And, uh, you know, then collectively people did that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting and it's a bit paradoxical when economists tried to look at whether the euro was really associated with any significant price inflation. It wasn't uh, because, you know, the prices of goods that you don't buy so often 
didn't go up and actually went down because the world was globalizing very intensely at this moment in the 2000s and you got all the goods coming in from China and that was pressing prices down. You know, this single thing that the, the price that you see every day when you buy a coffee or when you buy a beer or a glass of wine in the evening, that goes up. And uh, that looked very irritating. That's fascinating. Do you, was part of that just a denomination issue? Because if you had a 200 pesetas or 200 lira to buy an espresso, I don't know what the price was. And then suddenly you go to one euro or two euros, that that was a lot of price inflation just by the fact that the denomination of the currency was very different? Yes, it's a re-denomination issue, absolutely. And you know, globalization is generally pushing prices down at this moment because uh, you know, T-shirts are getting cheaper because they're made in China, Bangladesh, uh, Vietnam. The United Kingdom is, at least from, from our perspective in the US, perhaps the, the most notable holdout in adopting the, the euro. And granted, there have been the, the Brexit issues of late, but I wonder, looking back uh, prior to Brexit, back into the early 2000s, why did the UK avoid it? I've always wondered why, and I know there were other holdouts. I, I think Sweden was one, but but specific to the UK, why did they avoid adopting the euro when the rest of the continent was really being swept by this this new currency? You know, both the UK and Denmark got an opt-out option in the Maastricht Treaty. Uh, so every other European country, including Sweden, uh, which you correctly mentioned as not having the euro, Every other European country is actually obliged to join the euro under the terms of the Maastricht Treaty uh, once they've satisfied the convergence criteria. And the Swedes have a very ingenious answer why they haven't satisfied those convergence criteria. But Britain and Denmark opted out, and they take very different courses because Denmark has been essentially very, very firmly pegged against the euro. There's very little currency fluctuation there. And so nobody really thinks that the Danish position is unusual. Um, The UK opted out in part because the whole of the European issues were deeply controversial within the Conservative Party, which was in government in the early 1990s. And so it's the skeptics in the Conservative Party who were pressing the Prime Minister at the time of Maastricht, John Major, not uh, not to sign on to the currency union and to get this opt out clause, which he did get. And uh, But exactly that view is reflected also by the Labour Party and by the chief figures in the Labour Party, in particular by Gordon Brown, who became the finance minister, the chancellor of the Exchequer in the Labour government at the end of the 1990s. And he was really quite sceptical about the European project and got the Treasury to set up a list of five tests of under which the UK might consider joining. And uh, those were very, very difficult to uh, see that you, you would ever join under those circumstances. And I mean, in some ways, you might say, well, it's far-sighted because these fundamentally unfinished, unsettled issues that came out of Maastricht. And uh, so it was a precarious construction. Um, but actually, you know, the UK suffered more in the financial crisis than the whole of Europe uh, did. I mean, you know, Greece and Ireland had worse experiences than the UK, but uh, compared to the European average, the UK looked worse because it has these enormous financial institutions and some of them were very, very badly managed and collapsed in the middle of the financial crisis. And uh, you know, then since 2016, since the Brexit vote, the UK has also you know, suffered because the ties with Europe are being cut 
and there's a really substantial economic price to pay for not being part of the European Union there. When you say, I mean, is there really a good economic reason for being outside the euro? You know, I think it's much more to do with the fundamental psychology. And that's the question that you started off with, that, you know, there's something in the British political psychology that doesn't really align that closely with what the Europeans are doing in terms of their integration. What report card, so to speak, would you give the euro? And I'm talking before the, the financial crisis, because that's a whole other can of worms, but how did the euro affect international trade initially and, and up to the financial crisis? Were the, were the hoped for benefits realized? I think probably that bit of the argument for the euro was always a bit oversold. So Europe does get more closely integrated and there is more trade, but uh, how much of that is really due to the euro, I think is is open question. And the euro certainly didn't trigger a massive productivity boom uh, or a massive growth boom and European growth remains sluggish. And that indeed is one of the European problems. But um, that, I think, is a rather deep problem and it can't be easily solved by simply getting a new currency. I mean, in the same way, I don't think you would solve any problem in the United States if you replaced the dollar by something else. That's not going to affect the basic productivity or the basic economic behavior. Coming up to the financial crisis then, and, and we've touched on some of these, my, my understanding of why Europe had a difficult time contending with some of the issues that the United States perhaps fared better on. I think coming back to your point about the Maastricht Treaty and some of the weaknesses, the ECB can't do and couldn't do financial supervision and regulation, and they couldn't bail out countries in a fiscal crisis. And so coming into this seminal financial crisis, 2008, 2009, over here, we read a lot about Greece and Italy in particular, having giant costs of debt, giant amounts of debt, and the ECB being somewhat uh, unable to contend with those versus in the US's parlance, the Federal Reserve, which is able to do things with a, a much uh, more, more powerful tool, I suppose you'd say, because they're responsible for monetary policy, they have a sovereign currency. That dichotomy between, I think, hoping to be the dollar, but also existing in a system where you have sovereign nations that have a single currency as opposed to states in the US that are in a federal government uh, with a sovereign currency is fascinating to me. And, and I, I wonder, was there a thought that the euro was going to be able to behave somewhat more like the dollar in a financial crisis? Was there kind of an assumption that the, the ultimate European debt crisis that was faced would be able to be handled a little more smoothly? I think there's a fundamental difference in vision between the way in which Americans see their currency and the way in which Europeans, and particularly Germans, saw their currency. The dollar is, in some way, I think, a can-do currency. You can do things with it. You can buy up European firms, or you can fight the Vietnam War, or you can fight Iraq, or you can fight in Russia and fight against the Russian attack on Ukraine. The German view of the currency was, if you need a, a stable currency, you also need to restrain the government from doing things. And so the German view of the currency was traditionally a can't-do view of the currency. You want to restrain the government from spending too much. Um, and that was translated really into you know, the no fiscal bailouts, the no bailout clause and the Maastricht Treaty. So uh, you know, this, is, this is not surprising. 
Well, when you think of the financial crisis at the beginning, the Europeans were really quite complacent because they said you know, the crisis comes from American finance and comes from the problem of the American housing market and uh, the subprime mortgages. And we don't have that kind of problem. And also, we've got a better welfare state. And so we can cushion the effect of an economic downturn more effectively than the US can where the welfare state is not as developed. So in the early stages of the general financial crisis after, after the collapse of Lehman, uh, people like Paul Krugman were saying that the Europeans are handling this much better. By 2010, Paul Krugman is saying, no, no, the Europeans are handling this much worse because they don't have the fiscal capacity. And you know, there's no single fiscal capacity. And by 2010, you can really see that whereas some countries Germany or Denmark or Scandinavian countries have some kind of fiscal leeway, uh, what people technically call fiscal space. In Greece and Spain and Portugal, you don't have any fiscal space. And so you can't really do counter-cyclical programs and you really have to do austerity there. And so, you know, this is then pushing uh, Europe into an experience that was extremely grim and uh, where the social costs were enormous. And it all came back in, in a lot of ways to that, that decision at the, the Maastricht Treaty to not allow for the bailouts. Uh, that's, I didn't realize it had such historical roots. Right. That's correct. But it's a kind of complicated issue in the sense that uh, the really big transfer mechanism that occurs in the United States between states operates not through the federal budget, but through the social security system. So if there's an economic downturn that is just in one state or a small set of states, you know that group of states will get more in benefits out of the social security system and pay less into the social security system. So you'll get a transfer into it. Uh, Europe didn't have a single social security system. And the absence of that means that you don't have the automatic stabilizers that are there in the US case, even though in individual countries, each of the European social security systems is actually more generous than the American one, but they're not linked together. How would you describe the current state of the euro? You've hinted at this a little bit, and I'm just curious your, your take on where the euro is today. It's substantially recovered from the European debt crisis. The pandemic pushed it in the direction of at least an incipient move to a fiscal union, which is in a way the logic of what you had always needed. And the Ukraine war is giving an additional impetus to Europe to act in a united way. And you know, not just the Ukraine crisis, but I think the sense that there's a growing division of the world into blocks and Europe looks at the growing confrontation between China and the United States. And uh, it's clear, I think, to Europeans that they need to act in a, in a more coherent way and that uh, they really need Europe. And I think very, very significantly, I find it very encouraging what is happening, for instance, in Italy, where there's a government that contains parties that were previously very, very Eurosceptical. And the new Italian Prime Minister, Giorgio Maloney, is keeping to the European rules on the on spending, um, supporting the EU policy uh, on resisting Russian aggression in Ukraine. So there's none of the talk of you know, doing a deal with Putin 
or breaking out of the euro that was associated with previous right-wing Italian leaders. So Matteo Salvini or Silvio Berlusconi frequently made anti-euro remarks as well. And that's really cut out of the Italian political language now. And I think demonstrates the extent to which Europe is now in 2023 in a much, much better position than it was 10 years ago. Are there any countries over in Europe that, in your mind, now regret having adopted the euro? The only country where I think this was ever a really big debate was actually Germany. And, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about before. Has Germany lost something? And has Germany incurred a set of obligations, in effect, to help out the rest of Europe as a result of having joined up with the European Monetary Union. But I think the consensus among the major political parties, with the exception of the right-wing party of the Alternative for Deutschland, the consensus among all the other parties is that the euro is part of the commitment to European integration, and that in this world of political blocs, uh, it's more dangerous than ever to go on a single path as a small European country, middle-sized European country, I mean, I guess Germany and France are not small, but uh, they can't really have their weight in the world without a coherent action. Do you think anything was lost that was perhaps unanticipated as Europe adopted the euro, uh, looking backwards? Well, clearly the experience of the first half of the 2010s was extremely painful. And in retrospect, it would have been better to design the euro in a more comprehensive way. But what it did was, I think, very characteristic of the European process. It's very much a question of making some kinds of construction where you realize that there are flaws and then thinking that at a later stage, uh, you can repair the flaws. Now, if you are thinking of an analogy with building a house, that's not a particularly good way of building a house. You don't want to sort of have deliberate things that are not complete uh, with the knowledge that you might have to complete them later. But uh, building a common political unit is not exactly the same thing as building a house. And uh, it's clear that there are many, many differences, and it's a complicated and divergent set of societies. Uh, so, you know, having to tackle new issues all the time is I think probably the only realistic way in which Europe is going to move forward on this path to integration and also move forward on the path to being a coherent actor on the international stage. Well, Harold, I've, I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. And, and my final question that I like to ask everybody that I, I have the chance to talk to is, you've studied a lot about the euro and it's a, it's a major currency. It's used by millions of people every single day. And we don't often think about its history. So this has been a, a really fascinating way to, to pause and think about it. But I, I'm curious, what have you learned from your studies of the Euro's development and founding that you think can apply to today's world? I think it is really acutely relevant in the sense that you know this is, in a way, exactly the same kind of exercise uh, that the big BRICS countries are engaging on at the moment uh, that Brazil, India, South Africa, China are thinking of ways of increasing their currency uh, cooperation and working through this formal name is the New Development Bank, but people call it the BRICS Bank. So, uh, you know, people all over the world are really looking at this European experience in the Middle East as well 
Uh, there's been a long discussion about having a common Gulf currency in South America, common regional currency in Africa. So, you know, the European experience uh, has, I think, plenty of material to learn from, and in particular, plenty of material to learn about the dangers of going on this path of currency integration without thinking of the degree to which you're fiscally interconnected with each other. And, you know, I don't think anybody, for instance, with the BRICS countries would want to say that South Africa and Brazil and India should engage in some kind of fiscal union. That seems to me to be outlandish. Uh, but if you think that, then you also have to be a bit careful about the way in which you design the monetary cooperation mechanism. Well, Harold James, thank you so much. Uh, again, if you want to learn more about Harold and his writing and his work, visit history.princeton.edu slash people slash Harold dash James. Thank you so much for the time. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much, Alex. It's really great talking to you. This has been a production of Riches and Power, hosted by Alex Dubay, edited by Sean Dooley. Copyright 2023 by Wesley Capital, LLC. 